0: Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in.
1: Okay, founders, welcome back. Today on the podcast, we have the founder, CEO, and CTO of Pendrop, Vijay Balasubramanian. VJ earned his PhD in computer science from Georgia Tech. Has worked for Google, IBM, Siemens, and Intel, and founded PenDrop in 2011 with his two partners after he invented phone printing technology. Headquartered here in Atlanta, Georgia, PenDrop has grown to over 180 employees in its nine years and has raised over $200 million, cementing itself as the industry leader in anti-fraud solutions for corporate call centers. VJ is a true entrepreneur in that he encountered a problem, developed a solution and then built a business around his solution to help thousands of other people. It all started when traveling in India and he tried to buy a new suit from a local tailor. His bank flagged the international transaction and wouldn't verify the purchase because they could they could not prove VJ's identity over the phone. After the bank canceled his order, VJ decided there had to be a better way. 10 years later, VJ is leading one of America's fastest-growing companies and we are so pumped to have him on the podcast. VJ, thank you for being here today, buddy. Hey, thank you for having me. Yes, Yes, sir. Your story is uh, so intriguing, especially in the day that we find ourselves in, where technology is amazing and so helpful, yet we're starting to see things on the internet, on Instagram, like deep fake accounts, right, where the visual uh, software is getting so amazing and almost seamless that you could make it look like a politician did something, said something that they never did or said. Yeah. They're using it for spoof accounts. There's some hilarious ones on, on Instagram I watch where they're they're intentionally doing deep fakes as a joke. Yeah. Uh, but we also know how that could lead to some serious trouble. Yeah. And what's so amazing about talking with you is you are on the forefront of solving that problem on the voice side at the very least. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that, man. Like how did this come about, and what are the the implications of this?
2: Yeah. So the deep fakes is is you know a, a more sophisticated, later form of attack but it actually starts off with something very simple, which is when you call a bank or an insurance or a retailer, and you know you typically call them when you want to, you, your most complicated queries answered. Mm. And the first thing that all of them do is try to find out who you are. And they do that by asking you a litany of questions. What's your date of birth? What's your mother's maiden name? What's your social security number? And you're spending a good minute answering those stupid questions when you're trying to get what you want to get done and yeah. so you know it it's turned out to be a massive massive problem so much so that you know there's about 14 billion dollars of fraud in this space alone and an additional 10 billion dollars uh, wasted in terms of people asking other stupid questions so you know it's a 24 billion problem, dollar problem globally uh, and the fraudsters have wisened up to it right like with mm. all these data breaches they know the answers to these questions. In fact, one of my favorite calls is this fraudster calls in and this call center agent says, hey, what's your mother's maiden name? And he says, my dad married thrice, so can I take three guesses? That doesn't even make sense, right? So what if your dad married Gosh. thrice? He'll have one mother. Right. But the fact is that the agent is totally confused, says, go ahead. And he takes the top three mothers maiden names one after the other in the U.S., and his last one is Smith, which is a really popular mother's maiden name. And then he wires ninety-seven thousand dollars to a bank in England. So it's like stealing candy from the baby, right? And, yeah. and And so it's really, really easy to beat these call center agents. And we see fraudsters using, uh, you know, these kinds of tricks. We see them using anger. We see them using flattery. We see them using all kinds of things to get the social engineer, an agent, from Uh, taking over your account and that's what we prevent
1: man so on our side of this i remember so i've done we've done a research on you and i got to watch some interviews to get a little more familiar with uh this technology uh because it's not necessarily in my wheelhouse being technologically adept but one of the ways you described it to help me understand it is your product doesn't necessarily work it's not something i would directly benefit from but indirectly that as the scamming process might work however they go about collecting my data, whether they fake me out on a phone call and act like they're my bank or whoever, or if from some other way they could gather the answers to those kinds of questions, they then could take that to my bank or my insurance or whatever, and try to represent me and you guys step in there. Is that correct?
2: That's exactly right. We step in there every single day. And you know, just to give you a sense of what that means, just last year alone, you know, we stopped close to a billion dollars in these fraudsters trying to get into your account, wow. and preventing that. You know, we 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 handle about uh, close to now two billion voice interactions, and so you can imagine, everywhere all around the world, these fraudsters. What they're doing is they're trying to steal your money, and we're stepping in the middle of that interaction, telling you know, for example, the bank, hey, this is not. Uh, really the right person. This is not Jordan. This is not Drew. Yeah. And in fact, this is a well-known bad guy operating out of West Africa, operating out of Eastern Europe, or operating out of Philippines. And and we shut them down.
1: And so the way that you guys are doing it, from what I can tell, is it sounds like there's three different ways, almost like layers you're overlapping to get a either verification or a question mark around this. And one of them is proprietary to you guys, right? Which is the the phone printing idea. Yeah. Can you talk about, is that like a thumbprint? Is that where the idea of phone printing comes from? It it does.
2: And it essentially, you know, when, when I got a call, you talked about the story of the suit. When I got the call in India, the fact is that I had no clue it was my bank calling. But the reverse is also true, right? When the bank gets a call from me, it has no clue. And in fact, like, for example, when my, when my mom calls me from India now, all I see is a New Jersey number largely because she's gotten a magic jack service that's given her a New Jersey number. She's calling all the way from India, but all of that gets obfuscated. And so how do you determine that the true source of this call is actually all the way in India, right? And so what we started discovering, what I, uh, uh, me and my advisors started discovering in my PhD is that the audio in a call has so many telltale signs. So when a call originates in India, it leaves behind certain characteristics, certain sound characteristics in the audio. When someone's using a cell phone, as opposed to a landline, as opposed to speaking on the laptop, those leave leave behind telltale signs. And right now we have Have 1,300 plus features that allow us to uniquely identify any device anywhere in the world. So, just by getting a call, we can say, This is Drew's phone. We've seen it before. We absolutely know. And more importantly, we can say, Hey, this is supposedly Drew calling, but the audio tells me it's a Skype phone calling from Nigeria. Mm. And he's trying to do a $90,000 wire transfer at this moment. Something's off. Wow. And so that 1300 features is essentially what we call a phone print.
1: Wow. That's amazing. So is it in this order? In my head, it's which came first, the recognition of the problem or the development of the solution? Was it, was it in that order, the recognition of the problem? And then you were already kind of in the space where you could then go and take that problem and innovate the solution? Like, how did that work? No,
2: it was the recognition of the problem, right? Which is, I was like, man, phone calls have existed since the time of Alexander Graham Bell, right? Like, so it's over a century old and we still don't know who's on the other end, right? The only way I know it is I hear my mother's voice and I'm like, yeah, that's mom, right? But Hmm. otherwise I have no idea and I could use the phone number, but I can spoof anyone's phone number like this. And so the fact is that how do you determine who's there on the other end? And what we soon realized is we could potentially use what's known as signaling that is you know hey the phone number or things around it which networks the call traverses but what we found out is all, because telephony is such a complicated system and everyone's developed it differently in all over the world the only thing that stays common in a telephony call is the audio mm-hmm. is the you know what's uh, you know the fact that people are speaking So how do you use that? And there's a lot of people who originally used to use your voice, right? That is, I can start recognizing your voice, but voice is only a small portion of the audio. There's so much beyond the audio. Like for example, when we're having the call, we don't have background noise or any of that thing, but you could have background noise, you could have line noise, you could have your system encoding your pieces of audio in different ways. So once we started uncovering that, we started saying, hey man, just by looking at the characteristics, we can actually tell, we used to do this magic trick during my PhD that I'd have people call from anywhere and I wouldn't know what the phone number or any of those things are. And we just say, hey, this is this particular phone that actually made this particular call. And they were like, wow, how did you figure that out without knowing any of that stuff? And it's purely based on the audio of that particular call.
1: Wow. So tell me a little bit on how it goes from a PhD project to an actual company. I assume there's many inventions out there that never make it to be a business in and of itself. What was that like for you to turn that from this idea into prototype into now a company?
2: Yeah. So it was really interesting. So what happened is when we published uh, the paper that suggested the idea that you could actually determine the source of a phone call purely from the audio, it actually got accepted in a top security conference and then popular science covered it, NPR covered it, so a lot mm. of great uh, you know, publications covered it. And then, funnily enough, I started getting calls from banks, right? And uh, we had lots of the top five banks call and say, hey, we, saw, we read about this technology in popular science and NPR, we'd like to license this technology. And then I got, uh, there's an organization called FSISAC, which invited me to be their speaker for that particular month. And they provide technology advice to the 8,000 banks in the US. Uh, And so when I presented there, my phone never stopped ringing. And so at that point in time, we realized we were onto something. Uh, And so that's when we started incorporating the company and then started doing POCs and then
1: started discovering fraud. Wow, wow, okay. Well, then tell me this, Uh, I'm sure there has to be some sort of learning curve going from a inventor, a kind of a solo entrepreneur in a sense, uh, to a leader of a company. What has that transition been like for you personally uh, making that making that jump?
2: Oh, lots of self-doubt, right? Like I think that's the, lots of people say, oh, it happens overnight or you knew you were bonded. Oh, it's right. filled with self-doubt, right? Like that, you know, and for the longest time, actually all the way till our series B, I didn't quite think I was the leader, right? Like, and, you know, we had lots of these heart to heart discussions with my investors, mm. whether I was the right leader, right? And then, you know, uh, there's nothing like success, right, in making the right bets. And, and what I keep telling a lot of young founders is you have to keep training your gut, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of decisions that you make, you're never going to analyze all the data and make that decision. You just have to keep thinking about these things and training your gut to the point when you have to make that decision and you have to go with a call. And then you back it up, right? And if it doesn't work, fix it, go go on to another solution, right? Yeah. And so the fact is that uh, there was a lot of self-doubt, but then once we started hitting these massive numbers, started growing, started getting customers who were wildly happy, we started doing things. We started, you know, I started becoming more confident. But I think the thing that, you know, the one thing that I focused on a lot which, you know, served me well, and I didn't know at that point in time, it was important is the focus on the customer Mm. because everything else doesn't matter. We were just single minded on solving a customer problem Mm. and just focusing on solving that customer problem. And then everything else magically starts falling in place. If you are meaningful for a customer that they start writing million dollar checks to you, like, everything else is easy.
1: Yeah.
0: So go back for a second, because I think this was uh, something that I love. Hey, you tell entrepreneurs often, uh, keep training your gut. I think we should, I want to stay there for a second. This is something that I specifically love and I'm interested in how, how you interpret it. I've got some personal thoughts on it, but like, how do you teach somebody to train their gut? What are some suggestions that you give them? Um, or or just ways in which you've seen people take your advice and start to develop that gut instinct
2: right so i think you know it it all starts off with you know when you look at a, a problem are you stopping with just the first solution that comes to mind or are you developing optionality and then mm-hmm. once you develop optionality are you playing the chess game many many moves than the next the immediate set of moves so yeah once you start doing that as a practice and then you start developing a team that does that regularly, you start, and it's not just your gut, right? Like it is your leadership team's gut, right? Yeah. That is Mm -hmm. you as a group start having the hard conversations and you're constantly questioning each other, right? Like there's this great book called Radical Candor. We practice a variant of it called Brutal Honesty, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you are brutally honest with each other and you start becoming more and more meritocratic as a company you start realizing things and there will be a situation where you know you don't have all the data but you've mm-hmm. gone through this exercise of constantly uh, you know training this this notion of being uh, playing out the options or creating yeah. a bunch of options and playing out the game and you do this so many times that sometimes when you don't have the ability to do all of that you still arrive at the right decision
1: yeah. because yeah.
2: you're just doing that at a super pace. And, and there are times when you have to do that, right? Like, so for example, you get into a situation where you are in, a, 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 you know, your customer wants to throw you out. What do you do at that point in time? Right? Like there's so many situations where you don't have the ability to say, or you've entered a market and you're realizing you're getting creamed. Yeah. Right do we wait for more data, or do we walk out and focus on the older you know the older cash cows? so there's a lot mm-hmm. of these situations that you then start going back to your fundamentals because when you're doing optionality and playing out the game, you keep coming back to what are the fundamentals of the business? why yep. does one option suit the business better than the other options? and you yeah. keep coming back to fundamentals, and those fundamentals become so ingrained that even when you're not thinking about them, you know natural yeah. or you're not laying them out explicitly it starts training your gut into those mm-hmm. situations but i'll tell you one thing right you train your gut but your gut sometimes will make a decision that's wrong yeah and that's going to happen you know quite a few times right yeah the point is to rectify not beat yourself up i've seen lots mm. of entrepreneurs who as soon as they make a few mistakes they start realize, they stop train, they stop uh, trusting their gut Mm. And the, the moment you do, do that, you've lost because mm. all of your competition or everybody's playing really hard to win. Yep. What differentiates you is how hard you trust your gut to make these audacious moves. Yeah. And if you stop doing that, you start losing out.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I love that uh, Radical Candor. You specifically mentioned that one. I I love the book because they have some of the greatest models. Yeah. Or how to lead right like those models in love themselves give you the framework to make better decisions yep. you know the the radical candor model right it's like challenge directly care personally and they teach multiple models in that book to help you orient it around it and it sounds like you even have one for like optionality is a insert and then even the chess game is a mental mental model because we all those of us who have played chess or at least seen the chessboard we know That it's way more than checkers, right? You gotta understand the pieces, how they move, and a few moves ahead. I love that one. I wanna go back uh, and even hang on to like the when your gut instinct makes a wrong decision. But have you had any times where your gut was saying one thing and you went the other way? Because I I am a big believer in, uh, I'm a huge believer in the gut instinct, and I'm a huge believer in at some point along the entrepreneurial journey you're gonna have to make a critical, counterintuitive decision. Yep. Where like, it seems like we need to go this way, but I'm gonna go this way. Like, everybody's moving that way, and we're gonna yeah. go left. Yeah. Like, have you seen any of that too? Where you're like, yeah, you know what? Actually, this time, let's go the opposite. And that ended up working out for you.
2: Yeah, actually, Pindrop was based on that, right? If you think about it, when we started the company in 2011, uh, every time I went to raise around, it took me 60 odd meetings to raise my series A. And the standard question would be, you're doing what for phone calls? Oh, look at this yeah. article that tells you phone calls are dead. Yeah, there was no Alexa, there was no Google Home, there was none of that, none of those voice services, right. And so Pindrop is based out of a gut that everybody in the world was pointing to the same freaking TechCrunch article that said the phone call was dead. (laughs) And that, you know, why would you invest in something as old school as a phone call? Mm. And, you know, we kept going down the route of saying, yeah, phone calls might be dead, but the notion of voice, something that differentiates humans from, you know, all the other animals, right? Like one of my favorite lines is from a Pink Floyd song where Stephen Hawking says, for millions of years, mankind lived like the animals. And then they learn to talk, right? And so, 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 so that notion that you speak, and the fact that if you think about it, there are lots of famous last words. The only reason you have so many famous last words is because it's one of the senses that is the last to go scientifically. Oh. So you you spend like you know, and you you have a twenty three year, a twenty three month old son. The amount of time you're spending trying to get him to speak, right? So that's your first focus to the Absolutely. time that you die. The last words that's what makes us human. How can yeah. that go away? Mm, right. Mm-hmm. And so that counterintuitive opinion that that can't go away, it has to take a better shape is why we built the company. We raised our series A and our series B well before an Alexa came out. Wow. And then, you know, then now, now I don't have to ever talk about the market, right? Like all <laughs> yeah. my conversations. No more
1: tech article. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or now the tech crunch articles are probably talking about you. So yeah. yeah,
2: so you know, I think that's that's the key, right? That is, and we we started off that. So we always, and your gut might be wrong. So me as the CEO of Pindrop, my gut is wrong lots of times. But if you start training your entire leadership team to go with guts, they all have different instincts and wow. they all have different instincts coming from different places. So sometimes you start saying, Oh, this guy is onto something. And it could be your sales leader who's seeing some small signal in the market that's telling you that you're going to get creamed. And you need to trust his gut because mm. your gut, you don't have that signal. Mm. So Man.
1: Uh, yeah. There are several things coming to mind right now. I want to reflect back some of what I'm hearing just for the listeners and make sure I'm hearing it correctly. But in terms of if you were to, if you were to take this, so a lot of people that are listening to this are, are business builders themselves, founders of companies. And if you wanted to apply this, you're saying, investigate your gut first, trust it, but in the trusting process, investigate it. And one of the ways you're investigating it is overcoming the potential problem of only having one solution to the problem. Don't stop there. Give yourself a litany of options and then kind of play them out in the future to see if there's any obvious, almost like end of the mousetrap, you know, end of the the maze that you didn't see happening. And then you're also sounds like you're saying, um, you kept saying go back to the basics of the idea Right. I, I heard uh, when I was reading Elon Musk's book, he seemed to heighten on this. I know Ray Dalio talks a lot about this on first principles yep. that, like, your company will pivot, but whether it's a good pivot or not is based on like the fundamentals of the idea right. that you're working with. And I know Musk would always challenge his people when they would say no, they'd have this instinctive no, no, we can't do this. Yeah. You know, and so many of what he's doing in space and what he's doing in electric, he's yeah. going against what was thought to be possible. Yeah. He would say, You need to explain to me at the physics level. Yeah. Why this can't be done. Yeah. If you can, then you're right. We can't do this, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I hearing you
1: correctly? Is this part of the way you would train the gut for you this and your team?
2: Absolutely right. And you know, you have a lot of people who talk about this, right? Ask the five whys, right? Like right. why? Yeah. Why? And you know, those are all very, very useful to training the gut. But I'll say one other thing, right? Which is uh, optionality is great. But the other thing that you need to be a little careful about is I see a lot of leaders being optionality generators, as opposed to choosing between the options. Yes, I think that's a bad idea as well, right? Because you as a leader, the the higher up you are in the chain, as a leader, you should be making decisions, not creating options. And if your team comes up with one option, you need to train them to get more options. If they come up with three options and they're still not satisfactory, you need to understand why you're not satisfied, but you should stop creating options. And yeah. you know, it's, it, this this is a principle that actually comes from my PhD thesis, largely because uh, my PhD advisor was a gentleman called Mushtaq Ahmad, who, uh, you know... Uh, was the head, the founder of, uh, I mean, was ran the Georgia Tech Information Security Center. So he was at Georgia Tech for 25 years. Uh, didn't have to prove ten. He already had tenure, so didn't have to prove himself. And every conversation that I'd go to him, he'd never give me the solution. He'd always mm-hmm. say, hey, "Have you looked at this paper?" Have you looked at this? Have you looked at this? Just, just very open-ended conversation. Huh. So what ends up happening as a result of that is, one week later, I'd come and say, I read this in this paper. I think this is the solution. And he'd be, he'd, you know, knowingly acknowledge that, right? He probably has already arrived at that answer, but he never, for once, jumped into solution space. And what that means is, me for my PhD, I have so much pride of ownership on my PhD that I know it's my PhD, right? Mm. I hate using the word my uh, too often, but that's the notion, right? When I was an individual contributor as a PhD, it's really important for you to feel that your work is your own. The decisions Mm -hmm. you've made are, uh, you know, you've evaluated the options and come to uh, providing answers to the problems that you're trying to solve, as opposed to someone telling you that's the right way to go. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's you know, the I, there's one other tenet that I want to add to that entire notion, yeah. which is, as you go higher and higher up in the ladder, you can't be creating options, you need to be deciding between options. So yes. that combination works well.
1: Well, and that combination yeah. is beautiful to sorry, and then I'll say this, Jordan, I'll get to you. Yep. Uh, that combination is beautiful because in the back of my brain, I was going, how do we guard against analysis paralysis, right? Where if if you're playing too many options all the time and you never make decisions, you're actually creating a roadblock of not being brave and trusting your gut and going for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So part of it sounds like that hierarchy of, man, the higher up you go, the more you have to be the one leaning into the decision amongst the options.
2: Yeah, you have to force your organizations to make decisions. And in fact, you know, uh, I think a good metric, it's hard to do this. I do this informally, is how many decisions you made per week. Hmm. If you use that as a metric and you can't make it as a formal metric because then it creates all kinds of crazy uh, things. But internally, if you're keeping track, how many decisions did I make? What those decisions, I mean, what was the quality of the problems that you made those decisions on? And what was the quality of the decisions you made? If you informally keep that, that's another very, very important thing. Because if you find that you went by a week and didn't make uh, make a single decision, is your organization working on the hard problems? Yeah. If you're making decisions, if you are creating options, then you don't have the right people in the right place. If you are actually making good decisions, high quality decisions, and then at the end of the day, you're actually going back and saying, yep, that was a good decision, that was a bad decision, and keeping score informally. And not everyone does this, right? As you go higher up, it's important for you to measure that then you're realizing that your organization is executing and getting shit done as opposed to having analysis paralysis. And you can also see, right? Like this week I made one decision on a high quality problem. And Mm. then I went an entire month without making a single decision. What's happening? Are we so good that we're just scaling at this point in time so there are no decisions to be made? What does that mean? So are we ready for 2021? So it's it's important for you to informally measure your own decision making output.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, one, the amount of decisions, the quality of of the problem, but also the quality of the solution. You mentioned that one too, gotcha. which is, you know, a little bit down the, the road, I would guess, based on the decision. But that is that is fantastic. That's exactly what I'm talking about with like mental models. Yep that the mental models for for me is is the game changer of like educate yourself on a, on as many models as you can get i think that's an incredible framework i was thinking and maybe just staying on it just for a second more than we can move on but the reality of like the people we're trying to interview for this podcast are visionary leaders who naturally like personality basis and just what they love to do they love to create options yeah. they love to to imagine they love they're just naturally creative they they want to think about different things. And I, it's absolutely a trend where you see some of them that we've talked to, part of the reason their company grew is they, they resisted their own kind of personality to like want to keep it and to keep the decision-making and to ideate and to, to force ideas on. And, and they started to delegate that stuff out. What, um, what advice would you give to that entrepreneur who loves being the visionary, wants to come up with the ideas because he or she gets a ton of personal satisfaction from it? Yeah. How, how should they fight that? Because so much of it is their strength. It's real. I mean, it's the reason the company started. It's the reason they grew to X million. It's so, they, They've got so many great like stakes in the ground on the resume as to why, right. but it, it probably is a hindrance, right, to that next level of growth. Yeah. What advice would you give to, to that person?
2: So it's interesting, right? Like anytime you have this decision, it's a polarity, right? Like something like this. You want to be creative, and that gives you all the energy but then at the same time, you also need to have repeatability. Mm. And what I ask most people to do is whenever you have a polarity, you need to write the pros and cons of each part of the polarity. So by being creative, here are all the pros and here are all the cons of me being super creative. I create an idea every single day. We go chase things, but at the same time, this is what has helped us prepare for 2021 and so on and similarly by repeating you're saying hey i'm making sure my business grows regularly and by predictable quarters but on the other hand of it i'm not getting energy i love doing this so if you start if you start building this polarity diagrams for yourself where you write pros and cons you then have to evaluate be very realistic hey how many of my how many of these cons the first thing is just writing down all the cons that you can think of and all the pros And then saying, how many of these cons are applicable to me right now? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm seeing I do this. I'm seeing I do this. I'm seeing I do this. And then slowly moving yourself to more pros than cons. So, hey, I wanna get myself energy that energy can only come if I'm spending only 40% of my time creating decisions. And I have to have a mental model that those things are only going to affect 2021, unless I'm getting creamed by competition, or I'm getting creamed by the market, right? That's the only time you need to make a a, a rapid shift in Ah. the way your company does it. If you're not getting, if the market isn't growing faster than you, or the competition isn't growing faster than you, there is no reason for you to Knee-jerk your company into new ways, but you apps in in this day and age, you as a technology visionary and a product visionary have to create optionality for your company for the next year. So yeah. use this time to not only create the option, but then you'll start realizing that because of how successful your previous creation was you're thinking of harder and harder problems so the first thing is how do i get the right solution then the next time the next time you come up with a good solution and a good a good problem and a good solution you're like how do i make this really easy for my consumers to consume which is you start thinking deeper about problems rather than a superficial i'm just going to think about a lot of different problems right and that itself is super interesting when you start thinking about problems deeply most people who are creative find oh What's the distribution model for this kind of an approach? Can I completely change my distribution model? And all of this, you're thinking for 2021. So it doesn't really need to affect your strategy right now. But your thought process is so much more flushed out before you produce it to your leadership team that they're like, man... Vijay is now thinking deeper and longer, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm just using my name, right? Like it, it's yeah, not yeah. like I'm, 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 you terribly good at it. I'm, I'm getting better at it, but I'm not terribly good at it. So, but yeah. that's, that's, that's the way to think about it. Right. That is every time you see a conflict, it's a polarity, right? Pros and cons for each. Yeah. And you'll see that you're far outweighing cons in this current model. That's why you're thinking about it and you need yeah. to shift it to the pros.
0: Yeah. So I think we see something like about 50, 50, when it comes to the entrepreneur that we're interviewing or the founder that we typically are working with. And they're either, so they all are kind of wise to, I know that I need to plan on the future. I need to protect my organization. Like they can learn that, but some of them need to collaborate and others can just think on their own. They can process it on their own and they, they'll keep it tight to the vest yeah. and, and they have no trouble with that, but they, they can be internally visionary, but others actually like to to collaborate and, and they want to bounce it off somebody. So have you found that like who who's the trusted confidant so that the organization doesn't experience like the fog of lack of clarity of like, wait a minute, did the strategy just change? Like, do you have somebody that you're like, this is the person I like to at least get some of that out with. Yeah. I'll bounce it off them or do you like to keep it to yourself?
2: No, no, keeping it to yourself means you the idea is a half baked, right? No. So so I have a leadership team, but there are certain people within that leadership team who become my strategic confidants. And there's, you know, like I have a leadership team that's like nine people. There are only four of them who like strategy, right? The others are doers. So if 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 you go talk to them, they're like, okay, did the strategy just change? Exactly what you're saying. So, and, you know, I don't think, you know, I employ multiple methods and there's no one size fits all. But depending upon the problem that I'm going after, I collaborate with either just one of them individually or all four of them, but they know fully well that that idea is more an idea that's for the garage as opposed to you know taking it out for a spin. And I have found the more you do it one-on-one, And, you know, you have to do multiple conversations and do it one-on-one. That way, nobody gets the idea, hey, are we all thinking about this? Yeah. Right? It's just one-on-one conversations. You're getting where you are. You're flushing it out. And you're ready for when it is prime time. The other way to actually evaluate that is to start developing a mentor network. People that, you know, have seen uh, your level of growth 10x that, right? And so in my case, for example, uh, on our board is John Chambers, the CEO of Cisco. He's seen every problem in every market transition all the way till making Cisco the most valuable company on the face of this earth, right? So he's wow. seen crazy scale, right? And so I use him for a lot of brainstorming. Uh, there's another gentleman who's one of my co-founders, Paul Judge. Paul is one of the most original thinkers I've ever met, right? Like he always, you talk about fundamental principles. He always goes to fundamental principles and he's always, you know, thinking about it very, very originally. So Mm -hmm. having conversations with them, they love those conversations. They actually contribute a whole lot more to those conversations and you don't get your organization to knee jerk in a variety of ways just because that's what your mood is.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. so good. Well, man, I want to keep diving in a little bit uh, into something that's becoming obvious to me, which is an assumption we already had. And we, we talked to you about the beginning of this, that you know we, we fundamentally believe that people are critical to a business success, right? You got your business strategy, but then you have the people that carry out your strategy and get the results. Yep. But In order to lead people well, we believe you first have to be able to lead yourself well, or at least above the waterline in certain areas, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and what I can already tell just from poking at a few different of these questions there's a lot of self-awareness in you, yeah. right? In order to lead yourself well, you have to know yourself well. And so I'm just more curious about you as a person first, but then we'll get into some of your, your kind of team dynamics and company culture. Uh, but what would you say you've learned about yourself yeah. that has translated into real kind of priorities, whether it's how you spend your day or the things that you focus on? Like, tell me a little about that. Like, what does it look like to lead you and get the best out of yourself?
2: Yeah, so I think you know you can't do that on your own. So one of the things that uh, you know early on, one of my uh, investors, I think, or my one of the mentors, informal mentors that I have, told me, you know, once we started hitting some big numbers, that I need to get a CEO coach. And so I have a CEO coach, and I've had one for four years. So you know, uh, a lot of the self awareness, right? It, you have, I mean, all of us have egos and it's very, very hard to see beyond that ego from time to time,
1: Sure, right?
2: And so it's important to get a a CEO coach. And then, you know, my CEO coach actually gets external third parties to do a independent so it's not your HR team doing an evaluation it's an independent evaluation and this third-party team has no uh, you know has nothing like uh, they're not a a person of in the HR team or they're not part of Pindrop, so they don't have any vested interest on the answers so they're just doing it uh, in the behest of my coach and they do that and my initial evaluations were brutal man like my coach said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to send you the evaluation from your team and I'm not going to talk to you. Cause you're going to be super depressed after reading, oh. Right. So I'm going to talk to you a, a week later. Cause you're going to go through the, you know, the, the, the stages of grief Right. And say, Oh, right. my team doesn't like me. I'm such a shitty leader. Like nothing works. And we've got such great numbers. Why don't they like me? It's all me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then and so anger. You
1: can, yeah. Screw you can, them. Uh, Why would they say that? Yeah.
2: You get past the self-pity, and there was a lot of things, right? Like, so for example, one of the first things that uh, uh, that self- self-evaluation came is one of the biggest things that my teams talked about is I used to dominate conversations as opposed to facilitate. And that's because, you know, as you start growing as a company, something that you mentioned, right, which is uh, you as a creative person want to get your ideas in. And if there's no place to get your ideas in, you're like, what do I do here? And so I started getting more and more dominant in conversations, right? Instead of just waiting back, right? Being the last person to speak. And so my coach, you know, you, you, you're going to, and you can't just show up in a meeting and not say anything, because then your team is like, what the? Yeah, what happened? Me, yeah. <laughs> what happened? So, so, but, so you have to name these things, right? You have to say, hey, I've read the evaluation. I'm facilitating, I'm dominating, and I'm not facilitating. So I'm going to be the last person to speak. In, in in this entire meeting. And there are going to be meetings where I want a decision right now. And I'm gonna be like, hey guys, I'm telling you right in front itself, I'm gonna be driving this meeting hard. And it might seem like I'm regressing back to my old ways, but that's because I want a decision at the end mm. of this meeting. Mm-hmm. So starting to name these things, they all start off with, sometimes you are not as self-aware as you are. And I wasn't, right? Like I was just, yeah. you know, we, we, and when you're successful, you don't bother about introspecting and saying right. wrong with me. You're like, everything is right with me. I'm like, hi, hi. I'm like, we fired so much. We've raised so much. We have so many customers. I can do no wrong. Right. My shit doesn't stink. Yeah. And then you get an evaluation that says your shit stinks in so many different ways. <laughs> and you're like, Oh shit. Like imagine <laughs> we're doing so well right now.
1: Yeah. How,
2: how much better can we do if you start fixing your problems? Yeah. But more importantly, you can't use your success to believe you're the one for it, right? Yeah, yeah, In fact, you start realizing that true leaders are made during really, really hard times. Yeah. And everyone can look good when things are going well, right? And it's only during the hard time and preparing yourself for those hard times by being self-aware. And the only way you can be self-aware is to get help, right? So I have a CEO coach. We do evaluations, 360 evaluations, that uh, is not only my employees, that, 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 that are people who report up report to me, but also my investors. And so I we get all of that from a third party. And every year we look at how have I improved in the places that I used to suck at. And wow. having said that, there's still a long way to go But I'm definitely better than, you know, four years back when I was truly a shitty leader.
1: Yeah, man, I'm just so curious. You know, this was a thought I had early on in the question when you brought up, you know, radical candor, brutal honesty. When you talk about, you know, having an idea but exploring the idea and it might not be a good idea, right? And now we're talking about an evaluation that might reflect some stuff that's hard to hear. It it just brings me back to this. so many people, myself included, and I've had to work on this, are married to our ideas, right? We have like an overly emotional attachment to our ideas, or maybe our ego is overly attached to how the people around us perceive us or how well we think we're doing, right? But if we can't get, you know, more armor or, you know, disconnected in some healthy way, not an unhealthy way, we can't receive this kind of feedback that could allow you to grow, yeah, What's that been like for you? Like you said, at first week, your coach was straight on. Yeah. You're going to be, you know, kind of spit, your head's kind of spinning. Yeah. Have you guys done anything for you personally, but even for your organization to to try to avoid that trap of being almost overly sensitive to that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah,
2: but you know, the fact is that you're overly sensitive the first time around. Mm. You just have to get really comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah being uncomfortable is not a bad thing. And in fact, you know, as a CEO, your job is just uncomfortable because half the time you're making decisions that's gonna piss off one person, right? Oh, we need a bunch of people to do support. Sales wants a bunch of people. Oh, you're picking him? What did he do? was he uh, did he get into your year faster than I did get into your year so you're you're making decisions that are always going to piss off someone you're mm. always going to be uncomfortable it's always going to create conflict, but those are good decisions yeah there is a healthy amount of conflict that's important there's a healthy amount of uncomfortableness that's important for the c e o and you just need to get comfortable with that if you're not comfortable with it you that's if you want to sing Kumbaya, the CEO role is not for you. I mm. mean, you should find another role, right? There's probably another role. But if Maybe. you if it drains you out so much that it just makes you stop working, and there are people like that, right? Like who are very, very good and they have a place in the organization as well. That can't be the CEO.
1: Yeah. Man, we talk about this off. So Jordan and I are coaches. I don't know if we even got into that context, but this is what we do we coaches for fast-growing companies, and what, what what I've seen is what you said is right. Like, If you're operating in the right way, then absolutely after the first time, even the second time, you start to be able to settle in and not be as sensitive, right? But just like the idea of time heals all wounds, it's yes, but, yeah. right? You, you're assuming in that yes that that person has processed correctly the wound and has healed from it, but as I like to bring up, I've met plenty of old bitter people, yeah. right? Which means not time has not healed all wounds, right? Yeah. It's just festered. Yeah. Um, and so what we've seen and I see in you is you've had this you you've decided to go through this in a way where you've kept your heart soft. Right. Yet have got a hard spine. Right. Meaning like you're you steal yourself for the feedback or steal yourself for the job, but right. you keep your heart tender where you're not like we see that flipped, and it's really sometimes subtle right. where it feels like you're being tough, but all you're doing is actually toughening your heart. Right. And becoming kind of calloused, and like I don't care what you think, or I don't care if I've pissed you off, and right. I think that's an important calibration. Has that been one intentional, or just kind of personality set? You just naturally go that way.
2: Yeah. So you know, uh, you've you've uh, said it beautifully. I have to I have to say right, a soft heart and a hard spine. I think that's a beautiful imagery, right? Like so, I, I think that's exactly right. But you know, in terms of, it's one of those things. You know, I'm an engineer by trade. So, it comes a little more naturally, but more importantly, because I'm a first-time CEO, mm. I don't know jack shit. That's yeah, yeah. my base understanding, right? Like, I have no clue, you know, what, how, how, like, you know, initially, I have no clue how to build a financial model. Yeah, but, you know, I'm sure I can figure it out. Yeah, right? I'll
1: work hard, and I know I'm smart.
2: Yeah, exactly, right? And so, yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so that that's a constant thing, right? Like, and the moment you stop learning, mm. right? And if, you know, I, we had, for example, a leader in our organization who was like, man, I'm, I'm over 50. There's nothing new you can tell me. And you're like this young whippersnapper. There's nothing new that you can tell me, right? Yeah. And I've seen everything, I've done everything, right? And you start off there and you slowly work your way to changing that opinion, and there mm-hmm. are certain people who changed there was one person in my organization, and I just use age because that 's what that person used right yeah. there was one person in that in my in my organization that actually changed right like actually made mm-hmm. that change even though uh, they had been through a lot it 's been through way more experiences than you know I have ever had right and right. there was one person who didn't And at that point in time, when you realize the slope of your organization or the learning slope of your organization is higher than the learning slope of that individual, it's time to make a decision to cut the individual. There's Mm. nothing you can do. If your organization is growing faster than the individual, the individual needs to be cut.
1: Yeah, man. That's well said. I've not heard that model before. I like that. Yeah. I like that one a lot. There's there
0: a few that are like, yeah, we'll take that. Uh, so you actually brought it up and it's a question that I love to ask, but it's it's around information gathering of like, there's no way that you can know it all. And you, you know, you shared, hey, I'm a new CEO and that's why I don't know it all. But I'm not even, if you were a five-time CEO, I think there's a beauty in that humility of like, I don't know it all, but I I will go get the information. There's still that certainty of like, I don't know it all yet. But when I face the problem, then I will go learn it. And so I just had the curiosity of like, all right, where do you go to learn? Like where you already mentioned the mentor networks, but like, where do you go to get your information when you when somebody faces you? Yeah,
2: the mentor networks is one. I also have a CEO network because of the investors we've raised money from they uh, have, by virtue of their portfolio, the most amazing CEOs in their network. So for example, Andreessen is an investor in Pindrop. The Andreessen network, CEO network is exceptional. We're all facing problems at the same time or slightly ahead of each other. And so you have that. And then books too, man, like you cannot stop reading books, right? You'll find some nugget that is in some book that tells you, oh, this is this is what I've been trying to solve for. And I read this and I find it. And then you try it out with your team. And then your team says, yep, it's right. That's, that's exactly what the mental model that we were looking for. So it's a combination of having yeah. your CEO network, a mentor, books, and then yeah. flushing all of that out with your team to see what ideas stick, what don't.
0: Yeah. yeah. What books were you reading right now? Or what book are you reading right now?
2: So I, I read quite a few. So, so on the on the side of things that you know where this matters, uh, there's a book called High Growth uh, uh, High Growth. Uh, Networks by Elad Gill. I forget the name of uh, the exact name, but yeah. the high growth companies or something like that by Elad Gill. It's got a lot of, you know, great advice. So that's, that's one you know, one book. There's another book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, which is hmm. another book that I'm reading. Uh, and then there is a, a, a third book called Difficult Conversation. So those are the three that are currently on my, you know, yep. nonfiction uh, yep. book list.
1: Now do you have, well, two questions. So i I'm curious curious if you're like me, do you also have a fiction list? That oh you yeah, read I well? do.
2: I, I do. I mean, like I don't read as much fiction, but it's not business. I mean, so it, it probably is still nonfiction, but it's not business nonfiction. So right. I, I'm reading a book by uh, Stephen Fry called Mythos, which is all about Greek mythology. And yep. so, uh, that's a book that I'm reading. I've just ordered uh um, Reed Hastings book, which is uh, No Rules Rules, but that's again on the business side. So, you know, it's a combination. And then I yeah. I, 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 I read this really funny book by uh, this blogger, Jenny Lawson, uh, which I just finished. Uh, I, I forget the name of the book, but you know,
1: yeah. So that that's, that's awesome. what I just
2: finished, but that's, that's, that's again, cool. nonfiction.
1: Yeah, I, I have to balance it out. My brain, I love ideas and I yeah. love learning and I'm learning all the time. But yeah. I also had to find a space that was still interesting to me in the fiction yeah. category, but yeah. would actually calm me down or like help me go to sleep in a sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. otherwise I'd be up to one, yeah. thinking about all the implications for my business or for other people's businesses versus like, I want to fall asleep to something.
2: You know what I'm saying? I'll tell you one little thing that works really well for me for me to fall asleep, so I, I use audiobooks a lot. So I yeah, find same, audiobooks, yeah. and I and I just listen to funny audiobooks to put me to sleep. But the one that's putting me to sleep a lot is my son's audiobooks. So it's the same freaking thing every single time. But you know, I'm listening to it and I'm falling asleep because I know the story, and <laughs> yes. it just puts me in a very very calm place. Uh, and you know, when that. I'm listening to the hungry caterpillar for the fortieth time, there's <laughs> nothing new in that book, but it's yeah. just noise that puts me to sleep.
0: Oh man. Yeah. That's so good. <laughs> I'm I like, I, I could read, I could read it to you. I feel like I know it by heart. I'm that's ready. Right.
1: We all uh, do. That's right. Oh so yeah, true. man. If I hear, if I hear the uh, going on a bear hunt one more time, I'm going oh. <laughs> to, um, no, what I'm also curious is continuing that train again. This is even us just getting to know kind of your world, uh, outside of the mentor network coaches books at that point, I have, I'm kind of curious, like, do you save yourself from distraction or does it feel like distraction to pay attention to anything like LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or a conference? Is it an over, is it an, like almost an overwhelm of ideas or right. do, are there any of those spaces that you find helpful? And if so, how, because there seems to be a, ver- a variety of opinions like, no, I'm not on anything like that. Or I have my own trusted yeah. counsel. And then other people are like, no, it's very valuable for me to pay attention to this or to go to these conferences.
2: Yeah. So, you know, the thing is that, um, uh, I, don't, uh, I mean, I am obviously on social media, because, you know, every CEO has to be on social media. So I look at that. But you know, most of the stuff that comes out, uh, you know, we are in this crazy day and age of instant gratification. So, you know, news articles are not well researched, thought pieces are really not are pretty shallow. So I, I think, you know, if you really want deep thought, you need to get to books and things like that yeah. and you know if you're listening to a presentation it's a set of powerpoint slides right there's this very famous blog post on death by PowerPoint, where you know the Challenger shuttle—they had these PowerPoint slides where they had one bullet that talked about the issue that you know made the Challenger shuttle explode. But it was one bu- bu- one bullet point. Right. That bullet point didn't wasn't shown any relative priority to any other bullet point, and so everyone was like, "Okay, that's one among the seven things that you know people are talking about." And so, you know, I really believe in you know. Uh, having a little more deeper thought, but that's a little bit of my background, right? So I'm more comfortable in that arena, so I don't react too strongly to, hey, there's a new new thing that's happening uh if If I've already formed that thought through some other mechanism, then all of these articles help you know add color to that thought, but I've never found original thought reading news, or reading social media, it, it, it feels very instant gratification and very me too sure. in 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 thought process there.
1: Yeah, the echo chamber, right? Yeah, yeah I totally get that. Uh, one last question about you personally. And then we do have a few questions we want to ask you just about your team and your culture before we dive into the lightning round questions. But uh, I'm just uh, curious about this uh, stress. We talked about this earlier, that as a ceo you're going to be constantly in uncomfortable positions which is i think the definition of stress it's it's carrying some kind of load that's on the threshold right the threshold of what you're comfortable carrying yeah. what what maybe have you noticed what stress responses you have that have gotten you in trouble in the past maybe were either not optimal or literally caused made the problem worse versus the stress response the calibration of you to stress that maybe is really helpful for you
2: yeah so one of the things i've realized is because you know when you're a product ceo you tend to be creative, right? And so you, you but that creativity can be really, really bad when you're in stressful situations. So you come Mm. across a problem and you can get really creative on how that problem could, you know, could kill pin drop, right? Could be the death of, or could be the death of this customer, or you've just pissed off an investor. You can make the problem more and more gnarly than Mm. it truly is, Right. And I think it's important to wallow through that pain, but then, you know, sleep, sleep it, right? Anytime you're trying to make a decision too quickly, don't. And Mm. I I see this, right? Sometimes I'm in the middle of a problem and I'm getting more and more worked up and my uh, immediate instinct is to call someone to talk to them about it. But when I talk to them when it's half-baked, what ends up happening is I scare them, right? And I get them to think about it. And this is one of the things that I realized, right? And I tell this to my leadership team too, right? Like if you come and you want to just rant about a problem, that means that's going to be the end of the problem. You're going to rant about it and you're going to feel good by ranting about it. But that's yeah. the most base way of solving the problem. You solve the problem because you're just frustrated about it. You rant it to someone. Ah, a load is off my chest. Yeah. And now let me go on to do, because I have 400 different things to do. Or oh, let me go on to this. And that problem sits with them, gone off to someone else, and they don't know what to do it. So it's either died, and it's going to come back and do something even worse to you. Or uh, sorry about that. you okay. You know, uh, Or, or, you know, it's going to do, you know, you've really not given the problem, it's true due course of action. So mm. I try really, really hard, when I'm in the middle of this death spiral about thinking about a problem, I either reach out to someone in my mentor network, or I speak to my CEO coach or i try to just go through it saying you know what let me take another problem right like uh, this problem i need to go solve let me go do something else right and these are great times to go check email right just go go through email answer them do them just 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 respond to things so that you're just tactically occupying your brain so that you get to a state where you're not thinking from your amygdala and you're thinking from your prefrontal cortex, right? You're actually thinking from the space that is able to solve the problem rather than the fright or flight kind of mechanism, right? Yes. So it's just, uh, you just have to, and and my coach tells me, you know, and this is something I do, is just to deregulate yourself, right? To breathe, just Mm. breathe through the problem. And that tends to work uh, well at certain times. I just find doing something else, or talking to someone who's not within the company works out well.
1: Yeah. That's cool. So good. Yeah. I love that.
0: Um, I think maybe a, a little shift up of a, of a question moving towards the organization a little bit. But I'm curious about the, the hiring of people and the the formation of, of teams. So you guys went from there's just you and an idea and a lot of phone calls to over 100 employees what have you learned or maybe what's your philosophy on creating high performing teams or just creating teams that you're happy to have um what's right. what's your philosophy there
2: so i think you know the important thing is you know when you're hiring teams uh, this is not a, a original concept when when i used to work at google there's something called a bar raiser which is every time you do an interview you have to clearly elucidate why this new candidate raises the bar mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and you have to be explicit about it, right? You have to say, right. hey, this guy, you know, we all are great coders, but this one person is really, really good with architecture. And, you know, if you think about it, that's how teams start getting developed, right? Like if if you as, as a central core are constantly asking people the question, how is this the bar raiser? And then the mm. second part of the question is, is this the bar that needs to be raised at this point in time? So you're a bunch of coders, And then you find this one person who's a great coder, but is also a great architect. Yeah, you know what? Uh, We did 100 million calls and you remember when we had to go from 10 to 100 million calls, we cobbled things together to get to 100 million calls. Man, if we had this guy and now we're gonna go to a billion calls, he would be great. So you've seen that problem and you know this is the bar raiser you want. So the first thing is you don't know which bar raiser you want. So you explain how is he a bar raiser. And then the second part of it is you're like, and the way he bar raises is absolutely important to us because we've seen elements of this affecting us in the past. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you know, if you use that as a concept of growing your team, even though that's a very basic fundamental concept, it works out really, really well. What is this person bringing to the table that if all of you collectively did that job, you could actually get by. And
1: Mm -hmm. if you can't
2: think of even one reason, or if you all don't agree that that's the one place that this person actually raises the bar, you really don't need that person. And you can stay
0: lean. Wow. Yeah, I really like that. I like asking how do they raise the bar and then asking kind of what's my internal problem historically that proves that if we had had this person, the bar would have already been raised. Yes. Uh, That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Um, man, uh, how do you keep inspiration and kind of motivation high in a company? I I am a big believer, like on the motivation side, people need to have their own motivation. Like, Hey, it's not VJ's job to motivate but I do believe it is your job and your leaders' jobs to inspire. yeah and that's my personal framework. So how do you play into that and and how does that even influence leading people inside the company?
2: Yeah, I think you know um, you know, you talked about uh, at the beginning of this conversation, we want to tell stories, right? Yeah, and I think telling stories is very powerful. and the way to inspire people is telling your story, but then, Your story grows old very quickly, right? And unless you have a big ego, you know, it gets old and boring for you as well, right? Yeah. yeah, Oh, yeah. So the thing is that what does that translate to next, right? And one of the things that we found really, really helps is the next phase of that is customer stories, right? And yeah. so when customers come and tell their story and how you solve their problem, right? I remember this, right? Uh, we have these things called customer days where customers come and talk about, you know, what's the story? And there's this one customer, uh, it was a top five bank in the US. And they were talking about, you know, a Saturday when, you know, their call centers were getting calls, and they got a call, Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, for doing a wire transfer of a really, really large number. uh, And then a pin drop alert came in and told the agent, don't do that transfer. It is actually a fraudulent call, don't do it. And then the fraud team went and investigated the call, found out that the person's birth date was 1935, called the person because the fraudster knew all their personal information. And then they figured out that it was one of their oldest customers, And when they talked to her, they were like, uh, you know, we calling you to tell you that, you know, uh, uh, this person attempted it, we shut it down. So your bank account is the same, you don't have to worry about it. And even if the person stole your money, we'd have still reimbursed you up to the tune of $250,000. And your identity is compromised in this way. She broke down when she got that call. She was, uh, you know, she was, she was a widow. And so she said, those were my life savings and I don't have a husband. And you're right, you could have you know, reimbursed me, but if I woke up one day morning and saw my bank account had gone to zero, I'd have had a heart attack.
0: Oh, wow.
2: Right, and that story is all that's needed for the engineers to know that pin drop has to be high available. Yeah, Like that one alert, if we missed, that was someone's life savings going to zero. That was yep. someone's student student fund going to zero. I don't need to say anything yeah. else other than yeah. that story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right? but and not so saying think, them would be the error, right? Yeah, yeah. That's
2: and true. so I think I think it's it's those kinds of stories that people. I mean, like, I remember that day, right? Like every engineer, they were busy coding. And when they said the story of this customer breaking down, saying she was, you know, she'd lost her husband and this was a life savings, every engineer looked up, right? Looked up and said, and I knew, you know, you could make out, right? Like, holy shit, this thing needs to work, right? This needs to be high availability. I don't need VJ to tell me that this needs to have three nines availability.
1: Yeah, yeah. It it doesn't matter. Well, because we did our, I did my research on you. I know that that also turned into a t-shirt with a saying from your employees. What was that?
2: It says, uh, uh, you know, uh, man, uh, you, uh, it's, it's, uh, fighting Not, fraud. Uh,
1: no. yeah, sorry. Yeah. About a year I ago, the interview it, but it's it, fighting it, frauds, <laughs> kicking ass, something, Yeah, uh, you know, um, uh, no I get it
2: uh, writing code fighting fraud hell yeah right that's yeah. right <laughs> so, so yeah I, you know I don't know why it blanked out but it's 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 quite some time back, writing, code,
1: writing code writing fighting code fraud, fighting hell cr- yeah. no,
2: writing code fighting crime hell yeah
1: yeah amazing Gosh, man, what a great example of that man like yeah. the problem yeah. you guys are solving could sound boring yeah. could sound technical yeah. could sound like just a bunch of ones and zeros and that kind of thing you yeah. hear a story like that it connects the hard work they're doing to yeah. a mission that everybody resonates with at the heart level. And now they literally feel like you got engineers from like uh, crime fighters, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the,
2: the, we have a value, uh, you know, uh, which is called passion for the fight. And the passion for the fight, if you look at the poster that's hanging in Pindrop's halls, it's actually one of our engineers as superwoman.
1: Wow. Right? Like
2: dressed up as superwoman for that. And that's the backdrop. And then it oh. talks all about that particular value.
1: That's amazing. Well, man, speaking of solving problems, uh, we ask this to every founder and it's especially been potent, uh, now that we are in such a unique time. So it could be specific to the fact that we're all going through a, a global pandemic and an economic crisis, or it doesn't have to be. Uh, but we do ask like, what's the, what's the current challenge that you would say is the biggest challenge you and your company are facing right now? And how are you guys going about solving that?
2: Yeah. So the current challenge is the pandemic, right? Like the pandemic is really, really crazy because, you know, the the good news is, you know, we serve financials. And so, uh, you know, if you go back the 2008 pandemic, financials completely got routed. And this time around, they're actually supporting the economy in a pretty significant way because they all have said, okay, the last time, you know, we were in the middle of it, now we need to be the ones that are bolstering it up. So because we serve them, that's a good uh, mechanism. But you know, for us, just like everyone else, bookings has fallen down, right? Like it's not mm-hmm. stayed up in terms of, you know, we were growing like a rocket ship and now it's dropped off. And so we went into this mode of survival, right? How do you survive this pandemic? And now the biggest challenge that we have at PinDrop is how do you turn that? We know we're going to survive and we're going to be wildly successful in surviving, but the question is now how do you start thriving, right? Because mm. you know, you know, as coaches yourself, survival is not a great state of mind to, you know,
1: uh, do anything, do anything,
2: right? And so you need to shift the organization to thrive mode once again. So how do you paint the picture that this pandemic, when you know this pandemic, you know, there's, there's no end date for this pandemic, but let's start doing things that when this pandemic ends, we're in such a good position that we start distancing ourselves from the market in the sense we're growing much, much faster than the market as we used to. And we're growing, uh, not, you know, growing at the, or setting the trend for the market to grow. And Distancing ourselves from the competition, right? Yeah, and that is the biggest struggle right now. Because sometimes when you're trying to talk about those things, people are like, "Why are we talking about those things when we need to get past this quarter? We need to plan mm-hmm. for this quarter. We need to hit our numbers for this quarter." So it's mm-hmm. a constant tussle, and it's something that you know is is the biggest tightrope walk, walk, man. Uh, as right. leaders, you can't over rotate on one side or the other because then you could, you know, have a mm. set of bad effects. Mm. Yeah.
0: So it's be said. Yeah. The The reality of even just during the surviving time, like hunters versus farmers, Yeah. hunters and farmers, they both need patience and persistence, yeah. but the way they go about their getting their food is a lot different. And I think yeah. when you're in a thriving season, typically you get to be a farmer. You, yeah. you know that yeah. you plant the seeds, yeah. you've got plenty of water from the well that you can drop in and, Good things are going to start growing, and you know, hey, during this time, that's when I'm going to go pick, and so it's it's very predictable too. Very predictable, yep. But we need people to shift to like, hey, we actually need some hunters now. We need you to be patient, and we need you to be persistent, just like farmers. It's yeah, not going to be quite as predictable, yeah. Um, and yeah, I just find that and it's, mindset. An you know, it's, it's an
2: attitude. but it's funny that you know, like you said, right? Like, uh, yeah, that is the that, that that's a great way to think about it. But the reverse is true in different parts of the organization. Right. Yeah. So, for example, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, your sales team, you need more hunters than farmers. You need to go look at the organizations that you already have relationships with and see how you can upsell and cross-sell those organizations. Because new organizations are belt-tightened. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's funny. You, you bring the hunter versus farmer model, but we have had to do the exact reverse in our sales team that we've had to encourage our standard hunters to become farmers because yeah. they need to now focus on the accounts that they closed and upsell yeah. and cross-sell them more than going and landing the next big whale that's fantastic. because you know it's the wrong thing to do at this point in time. Yeah, that's, oh, that's
1: so helpful. helpful i mean this, uh, there's been a theme already in this conversation which is understanding the polarity of things right and, yes. I, and it's it's context it's like okay which one needs this and i i can already see that's been a big part of your and your company's success is actually understanding that the truth is usually held in tension and it's in playing that tension and understanding when it's a strength versus a weakness yes. uh so well said even the surviving thing like we've seen ceos that almost out of uh, either a naive optimism or arrogance didn't realize they were in a survival season. Yeah. And so it was like no you actually you're not thriving and you need to make decisions yeah. that are based on surviving. You need to cut your losses, you need to, you know, almost tourniquet the bleeding. But yeah, then you have so. others that get stuck in survival yeah. and never dream beyond the the situation to really navigate out of it. And yeah. so it's it's a, it's like neither one or the other, but it's it's when and where they're playing out right now. Yeah. Mm. It seems to be the question, right?
2: Yeah, and no. that's where, right, cliches can get you in trouble, yes. right? Yes. If you follow a cliche, just blindly, you'll get yeah. into trouble.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: Oh, that's good. Uh, let's move to the lightning round. Lightning okay. round, lightning round. Final five questions here for you, man. Got it. Uh, question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your organization, what would it be?
2: Uh, make hard easy.
0: Hard easy, okay. I like that. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's good. Uh, yeah, number two,
2: with a bunch of PhDs, we make easy hard every single time. <laughs> no, yes, we, we need to. We need to train ourselves to make hard easy.
0: I'm glad you said it, not me. That was good. That was good, man. Um, beautiful. Uh, number two. What's the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business, and what about the worst? So two the, parts. The,
2: yeah. So the best one is to focus on customers and everything else will follow. The worst one is go raise around.
1: Ah, quick context behind that. Why, why was that. why would that be the worst?
2: Yeah. I mean, so I see a lot of CEOs who think their success is dependent upon the amount of money they raise. And we've raised a ton. But the further you can push that out and focus on customers, the better it is, right? Like the first thing that a CEO comes and talks to me is, Oh, you've raised from Andreessen, you've raised from Capital, how do I raise around? And I'm like, That's not the right question. Mm. How do you get your first customer is the right
0: question.
1: Mm-hmm. Forget about
2: raising around, it'll happen.
1: Yeah, that's so
0: good. Uh, yeah. That is great. Uh, being completely honest, what's the secret fear that keeps you up at night? What's the uh, thing that stresses you out the most? You know,
2: we, we talked about it, the pandemic right now. And, and, how it's going to affect even financials and, you know, how do we survive even that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Number four, what's the dream result that you're driving towards every day?
2: Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, our mission is to provide security, identity and trust for every voice interaction. And as the world is moving to voice, it's becoming more and more real, but there's a core reason why we think that's important. It is voice allows us to be more human, then if we're busy on our phones typing, we don't even look up, right? Voice allows us to look up and become more human. And so the dream result is if we had a small part of bringing back being more human in technology.
0: Mm, love that. Awesome answer. All right, if you could hop in a DeLorean, you go back to the future for five seconds to your uh, to your past, you get to shout one thing to yourself from the driver window, when would you go back and what would you say to yourself?
2: Oh when would i go back so uh, i i would probably go back to uh you know uh, uh, when we had to do our first uh, reduction in force uh, and we had grown uh, very very quickly and then we had to pull back fund, uh, pull back uh, uh you know uh, um, our hiring and actually do a reduction in force because we'd gone the other way it was the shittiest feeling and i would love to say to that uh ceo this too shall pass
1: Mm. yeah because at the time i'm assuming it felt like the death of you right
2: oh my god you know it was horrible man like and Mm. you know at that point in time i had made the personal decision of walking every person that we let go all the way to the elevator Mm. and i had people who were crying people who were angry and the worst people who didn't say a thing they just walked in silence like you know think about it, you have a PhD Mm -hmm. who's got a 4.0 GPA, never for once has been a nothing but an honor student, and you're letting them go. They don't Mm -hmm. know what to say to you. And you're Mm -hmm. walking, walking them in silence. And you don't have the words to tell them anything. Yeah, it's, it's a horrible, horrible feeling, man. Like it's, I would never want to, you know, live that. But you know, I, I felt that I had to walk them because I needed to feel the pain, right? Like I needed yeah. to feel that pain so that I know my decisions have very, very important value. And so it, it was it was horrible. But at that point in time, you know, I beat myself, I beat my leadership team in all kinds of horrible, horrible ways, which I shouldn't have, right? Wow. And if all I had was someone saying, this too shall pass, uh, I would have I treated that situation better.
1: Man, uh, so many things stick out to me just from this interview, man. Uh, As we wrap up, I just want to say thank you for your transparency, your honesty, uh, your humility that is real. Um, And in that humility, I just want to reflect back to you. Like as a first-time CEO, you're absolutely crushing it. I'm I'm glad you're humble. I am. Thank you. I'm glad you're humble. We have a great team. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the work you guys are doing in the world, but also your your awareness of self of people. The fact that even that story there at the end, um, knowing almost instinctively, I got to keep my heart soft. I got I to gotta feel connected to the business and not just numbers is so important yep. uh, and amazing. So thank you for taking time uh, in the middle of a crazy world with all sorts of you know things pulling on us. You took an hour, close to an hour and a half here to share with other founders. And we're just so grateful for your wisdom and for all you're doing in the world. So thank you, VJ.
2: Thank you so much. Have a good one.
0: Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.